Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Okay, so this is Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. We are all about the stories behind the Asian tech ecosystem, the people that make this one of the most exciting, one of the most fascinating and the fast moving, fastest moving ecosystem in the world. To share their stories today, I've got two guys, Don Fan, Adrian Latatul from MB. We're going to talk about their business, how they got into that, and also how they ended up where they are today. And I don't say, say ended up, it's maybe part of a bigger journey in their life. So we'll find out a bit more about that. Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Graham, for the kind introduction. Well, it's great to have you here. Ho Chi Minh City is one of my favorite cities in Southeast Asia. How long have you guys been there? personally not the business but how long have you been there um so i've been here this is adrian speaking i've been here for um about seven years my first time here was about 10 years ago though but the last seven years kind of working in tech and e-commerce mm-hmm. and i've been in what well, we call it saigon uh i've been here for about eight years this is my third time living here and like adrian off and on uh for the last decade but uh, third time living here full time. Right. So you've collectively been there around about 15 years, but even in the last seven or eight years, there must have been phenomenal changes in Saigon, right? You know, what has changed that you, you know, now that you, you know, if you were to step out of your house today and walk around, what's kind of different about Saigon today than it was when you arrived seven or eight years ago? Smartphones. Yeah, smartphones. Um, everyone's addicted to like a mobile device in some way. Um, consumer culture has definitely grown a lot. I think, you know, 10 years ago, seven years ago, if you were looking for different kinds of like F&B brands, they really wouldn't have them or consumer products. Um, those are just kind of emerging on the market and now they're everywhere. Um, so it's a market that moves pretty quickly in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, what about in terms of foreigners being there? You know, in terms of like, you know, people, because I know Saigon now is, is a real popular hotspot for people, you know, whether it's drop shipping or e-commerce and so on. A lot of people have moved to Saigon as a choice, right, for, you know, they can get access to a reasonably large domestic market. They get access to a lot of skilled talent and they're geographically in a great position as well. They're sort of at that perch they can get all of Southeast Asia and China as well. Are you seeing that around you in terms of sort of people moving to Saigon and making it their base? Is that sort of happening at a rapid rate? Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty big exat hub, and the quality of life here is good and affordable. So, you know, we see people from all over the world move here. And Saigon is historically uh, a big trading port city. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense for somebody like you, Don, I can understand, because you have the Vietnamese heritage. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I want to come to your story. But first, Adrian, there's not an obvious connection. How did you end up in Vietnam? Because, you know, you're from the States originally. You told me off air that you have a Haitian, Haitian sorry, background. How did you end up there? Um, so I guess like the, the short story is, you know, I was in university um, and this was 10 years ago, I decided to come during the summer and I volunteered teaching English at a university. Um, totally fell in love with it, was taking Vietnamese uh, language at the time in university. And then, you know, every time I decided to keep coming back year after year, and every time I kept coming back, I kept getting better and better. And so, um, you know, back in 2012, when I decided to make 
the move here to actually work, um, I was pretty sure that I was going to stay here kind of um, more or less full time uh, to, to kind of seek out the opportunities here, and especially as the market kept growing. Hmm. What was it about Vietnam that connected with you? I mean, you know, I imagine a lot of people, your generation, that sort of time, they were doing Chiang Mai or maybe Bangkok or even, you know, some people, if they wanted a more corporate life, would have moved to Singapore or if they were in finance, Hong Kong. Why did you choose Vietnam? Um, I guess I part of one of the initial reasons I chose Vietnam was one, I had a lot of Vietnamese friends that um, I grew up with in back in Connecticut. But um, also, when I first came here, you know, nobody was coming really coming to Vietnam. It's just kind of this country in Southeast Asia that no one really talked about. Um, also, you know, everyone wanted to be in China or 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 Thailand, right? Or they were talking about Indonesia. And then when I came here, I just saw that, you know, there's a lot of hustle in the streets. There's a lot going on. Uh, mm. You kind of really have to stay and, and start seeking it out. And the, the, re- the fact that it was difficult back then meant that not your average person would come here, right? And so they had to have, you know, a certain sense of, like, resilience and, a, and an idea of, like, what they're going to do here um, that would keep them here long term. Um, and with some of the other places, like China, you know, the United States has over a hundred year history of trade with China. And so a lot of those paths are already carved out. And so there's institutions, whether it be foreign institutions or domestic institutions that are already, that are, that were like already catering to that. Hmm. So what you're saying that the, the, the entrepreneurs that came to Vietnam were tougher, maybe more focused and had a better idea of what they wanted to achieve. No, um, or is that what you're kind of saying? Cause it's, it's a tougher environment, right? I think I think it's a it's a tougher environment because no one's really at at that point had really figured it out right um, in terms of like foreigners and so that people kind of coming to this wide open market where no one's really here no one's like hey I'm studying Vietnamese and I really plan on setting up operations here that's what made it difficult um, and so it sounded like the ideal place right. Mm. Studying Vietnamese, I, I want to talk about that before I go back to Don. How's your Vietnamese, Adrian? Um, I guess it's, it's enough to read contracts and do negotiations and host a TV show. <laughs> okay. Well, that's pretty much enough, right? I mean, you know, okay, you might not be native level fluent, but you're fluent, right? I mean, if you can read contracts and negotiate and host a TV show, that's pretty much everything you need. Well, part of our deal too is that Adrian was supposed to run the staff meetings in Vietnamese and that's what we do. Uh-huh. So that's, okay, that's pretty cool. What about yourself, Don? I mean, you are obviously from Vietnamese background. Were you born in Vietnam? Were you born in the States? Tell us a little about your story and how you connected with Vietnam. Uh, I was born and raised in the U.S. I grew up in Louisiana. And like Adrian, I, I, I started studying Vietnamese in college. We actually had the same instructor. Um, and I started coming back when I, I, I took a gap year between my sophomore and junior year. And I spent a semester here. And I, I fell in love with it. And I came back on a graduate fellowship. Um, I met my wife near the end of the graduate fellowship, and I came back in 2012 with Rocket Internet. Uh, you know, we started an online fashion company called Zalora, and around this time, I, I had actually asked uh, Adrian to to come back. So Adrian and I had worked together on this venture before, and so we, okay, so you, we've been flying our trade with trying to develop e-commerce in Vietnam for years now, since 2012, and in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've learned a lot about e-commerce, 
uh, online marketing and sourcing. And so that we thought that we could use those skills to sell globally. Right. Did you come to Vietnam with Zalora originally or with, with Rocket Internet, obviously? Uh, it was with Rocket Internet, and Zalora had a different working name at the time. We were we were thinking about using the name Zilandi, Di, uh, but then you know headquarters decided to use uh, the name Zalora for the entire group, and Zilandi Di ended up becoming one of our private label brands. Um, mm-hmm. We we got a lot of experience meeting suppliers here, and you know Vietnam is one of the countries in the world that's like the factory of the world, so we're within an hour drive from a lot of these huge factories. Mm-hmm. So you went from Zalora to Food Panda, was it? After that, so I mean, that was another Rocket Internet. Well, originally owned by Rocket Internet, but they sold it off to Delivery Hero, was it? Yeah, Rocket. I think I think also has a major stake in Delivery Hero, too. Uh-huh. So I'm not sure what the corporate structure looks like, but but Rocket's behind there somehow. Right. So you were part of this Rocket Internet family, and there was some point in which you decided you want to go and do your own thing, right? which is the setting up of this company, which you, you guys both run now. So tell us a little bit about the story behind that. How did that come about, MB? Uh, sure. So around this time, um, I'd been with Rocket for over two years, and I knew that uh, I had learned a lot, and I wanted to push myself and take on another challenge. And I was looking around, Vietnam to see uh, where the opportunities were, and our our former boss Oliver Samware from Rocket Internet, you know he his bread and butter is uh, cloning companies that have worked in the U.S. And so I was trying to apply that kind of thinking and logic to Vietnam, and I thought that Vietnam's young demographics would be perfect. Um, you know there are a lot of babies born every year, about like a million and a half, and it's a super young country. Um, most of the population is under 30, uh, 64% is under 35. And you just walk around, you'll see babies and smartphones everywhere. And so we thought, okay, baby e-commerce is something that we want to get into. And it was something that I thought would be um, something that I could handle within my own skills. Um, when I started the company, I actually hadn't had a baby yet, but I've been thinking about babies a lot. And now I have a two-year-old baby boy. And mm-hmm. when we started... I didn't know very much about baby products. I knew a little bit, but uh, you know, we learned a lot from one of our buying partners um, who helped us start the company. And I've been doing this for a couple of years now, and we know quite a bit about you know sourcing uh, baby products from suppliers here in Vietnam. And it helps that you know I've grown up in the U.S. and I've spent time here, so we get more of a global perspective on what the trends are and how we can, you know, how we can. Uh, use our relationships to get good products at pretty good prices. Right, but with your background and your experience, why did you choose to sell baby products? I mean, why did you choose to get into that industry? I know you just threw some data out there about the demographics, but you know, having worked in Zalora, having worked in Food Panda, you could have chosen anything you wanted to sell, right? Right. Uh, I guess I, I sometimes tell people it was probably my biological clock ticking. Um, I was thinking about babies a lot and seeing a lot of babies. So, you know, part of it was like top down thinking, like, okay, the numbers are big, the market size is probably big enough, and the market's going to be growing. So, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for baby products, a lot of opportunity for e commerce. So, let's try to do both. Um, 
and then just you know my own personal uh, thinking about babies a lot. Hmm. Scratching your own itch, right? But obviously, you you grew up in the states, and you are selling baby products to Vietnamese consumers. But you know, I know that you have a sensitivity to the Vietnamese consumers. You've lived there long enough. You have the heritage and so on. Do you ever find that you know that is enough to really understand them? Do you feel like you understand the Vietnamese consumers really well now, or are you still sort of constantly challenged? Do you find there are examples like, you know, pop up on a daily basis where you think, oh, well, a little bit of culture shock there. I didn't expect that. Or that's kind of, you know, there's my American thinking again. Oh, Caught me out. A lot of this just comes in uh, with clothing designs, like things that wouldn't do well in the U.S., do well here. There'll be a really random uh, assortment of, design combinations like there'll be like a horse with flowers or like a rhino with flowers and mm. and that wouldn't match like you wouldn't see this in a in a u.s baby store but you'll see here and and those are the stuff those are the items that i have to flag and say sorry we probably can't export those right so where are you exporting that stuff to uh to the u.s right okay so your market is i i you're telling me you are selling baby products to the Vietnamese market, but you're also selling it to the U.S. Yeah, so the way the company evolved in that, we started off as a Vietnamese e-commerce company, and, you know, we were fighting tooth and nail here with other retailers, other e-commerce shops, and, you know, at, at a certain point, it just kind of clicked where we figured, hey, you know, we're from the U.S., if there's a way that we can actually sell in the U.S., like, let's do it, and we can utilize our cost advantages from being here in Saigon, and so, you know, we use a third-party logistics company in the U.S., and, you know, we send out a bunch of inventory. Uh, basically, our workflow here is um, Adrian and the team are setting up, choosing items. Um, on the buying side, I'll pick the items, and then and then Adrian sort of takes the the rest of the flow and oh, ship them oh. to the U.S. And you know, we'll immediately start trying to get customers um, online in the U.S. And how do you test that? Because I imagine, like, if you're not actually, you know, walking the floor, so to speak going out there and seeing what people want or seeing people, you know, walking around super supermarkets and seeing young mothers and so on, you don't kind of get those insights immediately. How do you know what they want? Are you testing that? Are you doing some kind of online testing? Or how do you get a gauge for what may work? Because for you, the risk is a lot higher in exporting something, right? Because of time and money and it's, you know, you have to have a batch to export and so on, even though you have a supply, I mean, a, a logistics partner in the U.S. To take your product to the U.S. is, is a lot more of a challenge than sort of selling it domestically. So my, I guess my question is, is how do you actually test that and know what's wanted before you actually go and do it? Right. So whenever we're in the U.S., we try to maximize our time there. So we'll do live user testing. So I'll bring back uh, suitcases full of items and I'll, I'll I'll let moms play with them and see which items they gravitate towards. And, and that's, that's kind of the old fashioned way we do things. And, um, there are ways to do it with technology where, you know, you can, you can kind of measure clicks and like AB test different items, but, and we do quite a bit of that too, but we also like to focus on, um, one-on-one -on -one user testing to see how moms react. Right. So give us an example of a product that you source that sells really well in Vietnam and also one that sells well in the U.S. Uh, I mean, some of the things that Vietnam Vietnam does well, uh, manufacturing baby clothes. So a lot of times it, it'll be like a cute dress design. 
Um, it'll be a design that we see. Um, in the U.S., there are some regional differences between North and South. In the South, uh, smock dresses uh, tend to do better. That they they look more like Southern um, anti-pendulum style, and that seems to do a lot better in the South than it does in the North. And that's something that um, you'll actually see here in Vietnam as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and th- was that something that you just sort of you you tested beforehand, or you, you did the one on one? Oh, that was know, definitely like the, that was definitely from user testing. Right, right. And how do you actually do that? Do you sort of sit down with them and just sort of let the you know the, the mom try this stuff, or get the baby to play with stuff? I mean, because I well, think it's kind of important to get the actual real world experience, isn't it? Which kind of a lot of people avoid in companies, right? Because you know, talking to customers is a little bit sort of fuzzy, isn't it? And it's a bit random. Right, yeah. And, and sometimes you, you kind of wonder, is the sample size big enough? Um, well, one thing that helps is I'm, I'm 34 now and I have a two-year-old baby boy. So my peers that I've you know, grown up with or gone to college or high school with, uh, they're young parents now too. And for the most part, our, our customers are not always women, but a lot of women in their 30s. You know, We have dads order too. But um, women in our thirties seem to be um, our core demographic. Mm-hmm. How do you know they actually? I mean, you've got a small group of people, though, and it's it's very personal, isn't it? How, how do you actually know that that's something that that's going to sell? Because you know you could get three or four people to try something, think, "Hey, that's really great." But you're there is the risk there, isn't there, that you could be blindsided because you know you've got a small sample. Oh, group and... yeah. So. Um... I mean, I, with with any buying operation, there's always inventory risk, right? But I think you know one of the big benefits of of being in Vietnam and being close to these factories, who are our suppliers, who also do exporting themselves, is we see what's on the line. We see what's being produced before it even hits the U.S. market, right? And so a lot of times, what the suppliers are talking about, or the trends that they want to try to push here in the Vietnam market, are things that they know that they're getting orders for and can sell overseas, right? Um, mm-hmm. Other thing is that you know the company's been around for about four years and it's it's a it's a buying intensive uh, company and so we basically live and die by our buying right and I think a lot of the data points that we've collected will know kind of slowly what items will move um, and just because an item moves doesn't mean that it's actually worth selling it right um, and so we take that that same idea and we try to apply it to the U.S. So we we rely on some kind of auxiliary data. You know, we also listen to what our suppliers are saying um, and what people are searching. So we you know we have to read a lot to see what what are the trends popping up, what are the what are competitors looking after. Um, and sometimes it's not about I'm just trying to pick up on a, ma- a macro trend, but just narrowing in and focusing on one or two items that will do really well. Mm-hmm. So Adrian, of, of the team, you're the one who spends most of your time interfacing with the the factories and the manufacturers, right? Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about that process, because I think that's the sort of, the, the obviously it's the hidden process in e-commerce and any kind of retail. But of the friends that I have that have set up their own retail businesses, and you know some of them have set up you know retail businesses that have gone global, they have always said that it comes down to the suppliers. And I think, you know, retail is quite glamorous. Anything e-commerce is quite glamorous because, you know, you're selling products that people can understand. It's easy to explain. It can touch your life on a daily basis. 
but it's this thing of going out and working the suppliers, which people don't see, but it's such an important part of the business. Can you tell us a little bit about that process of what you do, especially, you know, with respect, with respect to doing that in Vietnam? Um, yeah. So I think that's the best part of the business actually. Um, cause if that, I think if that part of, of the operation goes well, um, then you're always going to have like a good product and it's not just suppliers that are, uh, reliable in terms of the quality of the product they put out and the deadlines, but it's also their knowledge of of why they're producing those items, where they're sourcing those materials. And really, it's just an exercise in relationship building. Um, when Don and I worked at Zalora together, I did private label buying and sourcing for for men's apparel at Zalora. And so a lot of the the factories and the contacts you know that we'll have here, or some of them come from that, and that's where some of my experience comes from. Um, yeah. What kind of a person do you have to be to be successful at that? Because I know you talk about relationships and so on, but what kind of a person? Obviously, you can't be a soft touch, you know, if you're working with suppliers, but at the same time, you can't be, you know, you can't be the opposite of that. So I'm just curious to know what kind of personality works well in that environment. Um, yeah, so yeah, I guess you have to be willing to get down and dirty. You have to be willing to go to the fact that you have to be willing to touch the product. I mean, typically, if you want to manage from the office, like, you know, I know people who, who have agents and they'll manage that way. It's very difficult because it's an exercise in communication. And anyone who runs a tech business, it's like having your operations team talk to your product team. You guys aren't speaking the same language. And so in order in order for, for me to kind of work with the suppliers and, and get things produced or source products, I have to speak the same language. I need to know what the product specs are. I need to know where they're getting their material. And sometimes, you know, entertain them a bit by, by helping them. If they're having trouble, you know, finding a certain type of material to produce, then I might even go to the to, to another supplier and see if I can source it for them, right? Um, and that's kind of the relationship building and, 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 uh, and supply chain that ends up being built. And through that, you're able to get, like, a more reliable product. Um, and the, these are all Vietnamese domestic yes. manufacturers, yeah. right? Yeah. So how does that work out? We actually, because we actually do you know, people across the border. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we do. So, know, sorry, that cut out. Say again. We we actually do have some relationships across the border in Cambodia, and and we get inbound uh, inquiries from China quite a bit. So just the entire region hmm. is a pretty big factory. Yeah. Right. So there's no shortage of potential suppliers. The key is building relationships. And I'm curious about that because, Don, you may look more like a local than Adrian, and, you know, but it would be pretty obvious pretty quickly that you weren't born in Vietnam, I guess, to a lot of these suppliers, especially when you talk to them. So I'm curious about how that sort of works out because I know from my experience, you know, when you deal with uh, any kind of incumbent culture, there's always a challenge, isn't it? Because there is always a default position which you can fall to, which becomes the them and us thing. You know, when things go wrong, it's, oh, well, you know, they're treating me like this because I'm, you know, I'm a foreigner or, you know, I'm a white guy in Asia or whatever it may be. That's always a challenge not to sort of snap into that sort of mode. And I guess from their side as well, it can be the same as well. You know, if there's a breakdown of communications. They can all see you as not one of them. You know, maybe you brought up differently, different way of doing things, different way of talking about things and so on. So I'm curious about how you actually manage that because that's such a core part of creating a good relationship, isn't it? And it could easily go so wrong. And that could be the sort of default playing position, right? You know, if... 
become a sticking point between you and the suppliers when it doesn't necessarily have to be. So how do you work that out? How do you ensure that you don't go down that route when you work with suppliers? I, I, I don't think of it so much as a sticking point. I think of it more as a benefit. And one of the ways we stumbled in these relationships is that we would meet with suppliers and we would start speaking and they would ask me, um, hey, you sound a little bit funny. Um, did you grow up somewhere else? And I say, yes, I grew up in the U.S. And they would say, hmm. can you help me export to the U.S.? Interesting. So they already see it as an as an opportunity. Yeah, they're business people too, and and they know that you know we probably have access to to wider markets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I mean, in terms of you being brought up in the U.S. and then coming to Vietnam, how do Vietnamese people generally react to that? I mean, I don't know the culture well enough. Are they sort of curious about you, or are they a little bit suspicious? Oh, it runs the gamut. Yeah, I mean, it could totally run the gamut in terms of people being very accepting. Um, a lot of people have relatives like me, you know, who grew up overseas, maybe in Germany, Europe, uh, Canada, the U.S., um, you know, even Japan. So it that that's actually fairly common because so many people left in the 70s and 80s. Um, in terms of trust i mean you know you always try to be fair with the people that we're working with and you know we don't want any hard feelings because we're trying to be long-term greedy here and we hope that our supplier relationships are you know business relationships that we can work with them over decades mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how about with you adrian is it harder because obviously you don't have a vietnamese looking face so but maybe that makes it easier for them that they can say well obviously you're not a sort of we don't kind of know whether you're vietnamese or you're foreign obviously you're a foreigner just working out how does that work with your suppliers are they is it harder for you to deal with them do you find there's a bit more resistance because you're from abroad um no i think um generally like you know the vietnamese suppliers and Vietnamese people they love um the opportunity to work with foreigners and so you know on appearance appearance wise they'll jump at that and then you know if i speak vietnamese to them then are even more exciting. It's kind of like entertainment, and so a little bit making their life easier, and so they're often like quite excited, right? Um, and it means again, it means being able to, to 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 speak, you know, both languages, like both English and Vietnamese. Sometimes, you know, they they want help with products or customers that are English speaking or overseas, and so they'll ask for that as well. So it becomes like a mutual beneficial relationship. Yeah, that's very interesting. And the fact that you've you've gone to the effort to learn the language, if, if what you say is correct and you can negotiate in Vietnamese. I mean, that must, you know, it's a pretty advanced level of language wherever you are in the world. Right. And for you to have gone through that effort to do that for a local person, you know, they feel that, you know, okay, you're stepping into my culture now. Therefore I feel a sense of connection with you. So it's not like they don't feel threatened by that. Right. Cause it's so easy, I guess. I don't know how it is in Ho Chi Minh city, but it's here in Tokyo. And I'm sure it's the same in many other cities in the world it's so easy to fall into an expat community, isn't it? Where you could live there seven or eight years and not speak a single word of the language, but you've kind of like forced yourself to go out. And how do you actually go about that? Cause I'm, I think it's great advice for anybody who's moving to these cities. Um, you know, they think about going there to start a business, but you know, the success and failure of that's going to come down to whether or not they can actually live there. Right. Rather than the success of the business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. I think these days it's a lot easier to kind of put yourself in the expat community. Um, but you know, when, 
seven years ago, ten years ago, there were expats here, but there weren't any like places that a lot of expats really congregated, right? And so you're kind of forced to be out and and just meet a lot of different people. Um, I think you know when I came back um, to, for you know long term wise and started working at Solora, um, it was simple. It's you know I'm here to build relationships. I'm here here to to kind of produce these products and get into business. And so you know find all the groups and the the personalities that we need to meet to make that happen, regardless of where they're from, right? But again, like. When, whenever you're 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 dealing with um, you know business in Vietnam, it's best to have like a lot of strong local re- uh, relationships because those they also have their own relationships and those go a lot further. Um, there's also mm-hmm. this factor when you talk about expats because there's always the idea that you know in a week or two or in the next year or the next two years that could just up and leave, right? And so having you know strong local relationships is is really what takes you too far, and that's that's. That's not even touching the language issue. I think the language issue makes that easier, right? Mm-hmm. I think naturally by speaking the language that um, you're able to connect to people that may not have, you know, expat friends. And so you're, it's easier to kind of spend time with them and get to know them, their families, and their other associates. Yeah, sure. And your boy, uh, Don, two years old, you said. That's right. Right. His name is Graham. And, uh, his name is Graham. Thank you. <laughs> So what's uh I mean in terms of what he's going to speak in the household is it going to be Vietnamese or English? Uh right now he seems stronger in Vietnamese. Right. He, but that's cuz it's around him all the time, right? Yeah, so my wife and I have been very diligent about speaking English to him, but he notices us speak Vietnamese um to our staff and he also notices Adrian speak Vietnamese to other people. Mm. Yeah, I speak Vietnamese too. Right. And so his um <laughs> babies are smart in that way, I guess. They will notice what language uh, adults are speaking to each other and, and I think he takes that as a cue. Yeah, yeah. But he would have heard been exposed to English as well. So even if you know he Vietnamese was his dominant language, for him to pick up English and speak as a native is going to be straightforward right because he's got all the sounds in his head which sort of impressed upon a at an early age right which is always harder when you're older trying to start a new language because you can't get those sounds in your head right right that's the hope that is the hope but it's fine it's just interesting because you know you're 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 living in that world do you think that you would then want him to grow up in america or do you think by the time that he grows up that vietnam would be a default choice for somebody like him a young guy in vietnam growing up the opportunities there what do you think oh we just want him to have the choice to go wherever he wants um we think that vietnam is going to be a rich country in our lifetime and that my son's going to have a lot of opportunities here uh the u.s is still a super dynamic place and you know we do business in both the u.s and vietnam and we we hope he's going to be able to have one foot in either country whenever he wants right so in 2033 he'll be what 18 yeah that'll be right right he'll be 18 so he'll be a man in 2033 what was vietnam gonna look like then well i'm thinking more about what saigon's gonna look like i think the the infrastructure is going to be a lot better and yeah. hopefully it'll be less polluted yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i mean some people commented that korea in the in the you know the late 80s and, and the early 90s is what Vietnam looks like today, right? Um, people have said that mm-hmm. Taiwan as well, uh, in Taipei. So 
um, you know, if, if those are any clues into what's going to happen in terms of development, then, um, you know, in, I guess, in, in you know, 16 more years, then um, we're just, yeah, it's going to be a, a bigger market. There's going to be a lot more, um, a lot more flow of like products coming in and going out. There's probably a lot of the government regulations will also have changed as well, right? And then urban infrastructure, um, which makes the city kind of glimmer and glam. That uh, that's going to be like, you know, more or less people looking at Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So if I was a, a young entrepreneur now and I, I wanted to get my foothold in Asia. I mean, some of the places I've mentioned already are sort of the default obvious choices of sort of a location-independent entrepreneur. I might go to Thailand. You know, I may go to Singapore if I want to do that sort of corporate thing. Why would I choose Vietnam? And importantly, sort of looking forward as well, you know, that sort of new next generation of entrepreneurs who may be graduating and you know, getting started in the U.S. who may want to go and sample the future. You know, what would be the real draw for somebody like that? What would be the sort of the, the case that would sell it to somebody to come to v- Saigon particularly right. over the other cities? So don't, don't come here and compete against us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you've established that. So those guys are out, right? Um, what would be the draw? I think, you know, people always come and go in Vietnam, and I think there's not as many people staying here for, like, the long haul. And if you think about it from a perspective of culture, if you think about it from a perspective of language, um, a lot of that's still relatively untouched territory, right? And so if someone says, hey, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, and they enjoy that challenge, um, to kind of discover and, and create something new for themselves, where the market is is not dictating as much. Here, the market doesn't dictate as much as, let's say, other places like Singapore or, or let's say, Hong Kong, right? And so if someone says, hey, I have a new idea and I want to test it out, that's relatively, you know, a place where my operations costs don't have to be high, um, I can recruit great talent, and the people here are hungry, right? Um, they want to create something for themselves, and so it's great to find, it's, you know, it's easier to find uh, great partners or great people that you're able to work with. Um, mm. And so I, yeah, that's, a, that's a huge appeal. Right. It, on that note, do you find it easier to get things done as an entrepreneur? Um, it, I think it depends. With the right team, yes. But in terms of red tape and, and kind of regulatory, on the regulatory side, it can be difficult. But, you know, once you figure it out, then it, it feels, you know, a lot easier. Right. And that's going to change. That's going to improve, isn't it? Because, you know, Vietnam is growing up essentially and you know to grow up it has to go through a number of hurdles you know clear a number of hurdles to get to the kind of stage where singapore or hong kong is right and that's not going to start with necessarily removing all the red tape that sort of comes over time isn't it but that gets better if you're looking around the region you know if you look at what's happening it's all sort of heading in the right direction when it comes to bureaucracy and supporting entrepreneurship and i think that's one of the things that challenges people you know who have only ever known life in europe or life in the us right is that they kind of assume that that is the the bastion of entrepreneurship you know if you're going to start a business you've got to do it there because that's the free world if i can use it quote unquote whereas asia is sort of still a developing market but i think people are constantly surprised aren't they when they come to asia and see how things are done especially how they've changed in the last five or ten years at least and how pro entrepreneurship they are and how things are really sort of moving in the right direction. If you're an entrepreneur, it's a great place to be because there's that sort of can-do attitude. So 
Don, Adrian, it's great speaking to you. A real pleasure having you on the show. Um, before I let you go, I want you to share with us some links so the listeners can find out a bit more about you. Sure. Uh, our company is mb.co. It's E-M-B-E dot C-O. And so if you're in the U.S., you can order baby clothes and other items from us. Fantastic. And personally, where can they find out about more about your stories? Do you have anything out there that which they can go and check out? Um, I think if you if yeah if you Google Don Campan, you're gonna find out a lot. Um, if you Google my name, <laughs> you'll you'll find out some stuff. We we've upped our SEO game personally. Um, you know, we should write more about us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, our LinkedIn's. Um, I don't even know my link. All right. Yeah. We could put all the details in the show notes. Okay. That's fantastic. Thank you. Much appreciated. Gentlemen, yeah, gentlemen, loved having you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story and sharing with us your journey to getting to Vietnam and also things at MB and also, you know, how things are going there. Wish you all the best with that. It would be great to keep uh, a close eye on how you're doing with that journey. And in the future, you know, you've got new developments, new news about your progress, about MB and so on. You know, please come back on the, the show and share it with us. Great, we'd love to. Let us know when you're in Saigon. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.